You're listening to the Writers Forum. I'm your host, Mike Tusa, and today I'll be speaking with author T.R. Johnson about his wonderful new book, New Orleans, A Writer's City. T.R. has taught at several universities and is presently a professor of English and a vice presidential fellow at Tulane University. He's also written several books and is the editor of New Orleans, A Literary History. And he's also the host of a contemporary jazz program on WWOZ, Jazz from the French Market. Welcome to the show, T.R. Hello, and thank you so much for having me. All right, well, look, I'm going to start with a simple question. What drew you to this project to set forth in kind of a historical fashion New Orleans as a writer city? And I, and I should clarify one thing for listeners. It, it, the book is not just about people who wrote books about New Orleans. But go ahead. What, what drew you to this? You know, it's, uh, it's such a big subject. I've always been an avid reader and obviously... My, I, I make my life as an English professor, and I've just been in love with New Orleans now for more than 20 years, and always been, even as a kid growing up, kind of intrigued by New Orleans. I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, and, and was sort of aware of New Orleans coming into my teens and increasingly interested in it, and, and then ended up coming here as an adult, and I uh, had an opportunity to start teaching a class on the literature of New Orleans, and that became like catnip to me. I just just kept digging in more and more deeply. It was right after Katrina. I had a colleague who had been teaching a class on the literature of New Orleans who retired. I kind of inherited that class from him, and I wasn't quite sure what to make of it. I had no particular training in that area. I just was kind of a fan and, and, and excited and dug into it, and the more I got into it, the more interested I became. And this was, as I say, in the years right after Katrina, I started teaching that class. And um, oh, about 10 years into that experience of teaching that class very regularly, uh, I got approached by Cambridge University Press saying, we're interested in putting out a book about the history of the literature here and edit a collection of essays that would be edited. You seem like the person that would be right to do that. I did it. They were excited enough about it that they said, we'd like you to take the final chapter of that book, which I had written myself. It was not one of the ones I'd solicited from another academic. And they said, could you take that final essay and really stretch it to book length and really go deep for us? I said, well, of course, you know, I would love to. And so I did. Um, and the more I kind of got into this new book, um, the more excited I became. It just, it's, New Orleans is one of those things that the more you get into it, the kind of the more it gives back and the more rewarding it becomes. So that has sort of been my journey that, that led to the book in front of you there. Well, it's a fascinating book with so much information. Now, let me, I'm a native New Orleanian, and when I talk to people about New Orleans, they always mention the music or the food. They don't often mention the writers. Um, there's a rich history in the book that expands a long period of time. Talk about the period of time you covered here mm -hmm. and how you knew where to start and those types of things. <laughs> That's a great question. Yeah, where do you start and where do you end with something this big? It's kind of a tough question. I'm not sure I can answer it. Um, you know, as you say, the music of New Orleans has spread all over the world. And it just just any reference to it anywhere, people will sort of, their face will light up and, and there will be that recognition. And the cuisine, too. Um, is it has traveled, you know, and it typically, you know, airports in wherever, you know, they're Creole beans, what have you, you mm -hmm. know. Um, but it's true that people don't necessarily make a big ruckus about the literary legacy here, which is staggering. And as you say, I mean, it starts, you know, the first hundred odd years of uh, European settlement here with with the Africans they brought with them. Um, there is some work, a lot of it in French and uh, particularly in Creole, but it really seems to me to get rolling. In the 1840s and 50s, there begins to be, I think, really important literary activity here. 
um, Les Sennels in the 1840s and the Afro-Creole poets publishing in the newspapers in the 1860s um, is where you really begin to see what we recognize today as really important historical work that then in the aftermath of the Civil War just explodes with Lafcadio Hearn and George Cable, Grace King, Molly Moore Davis. Fast forward just a little bit into Kate Chopin and O. Henry. This is a uh, outpouring of work in the decade, the final decades of the 19th century and the dawn of the 20th century that then kind of lays the groundwork for in the 1920s, a kind of bohemian circle springs up in the French Quarter around Sherwood Anderson. Very famously, William Faulkner was a part of this scene. And that's where something like the literary culture of our time really, really starts to take off. It, it roars again in the 1940s um, and, and, and becomes, you know, the French Quarter becomes kind of a home to literary celebrity, Truman Capote, Tennessee Williams, uh, Francis Parkinson Kyes, uh, on and on. And so it really, really gets rolling. At that point, New Orleans has a reputation as kind of a, not just a party town, a rough and tumble port city, but a place where a kind of high culture legacy, uh, a traditionally kind of elite cultural legacy is also starting to really move. Faulkner wins the Nobel, I think, in the late 40s. And in the explosion of creativity that led to that immediately followed, it, it took off right after he left here, really. So it becomes a magnet for writers in the 50s and 60s, even in the 70s and 80s, and of course, even today. Um, so I sort of start, I, I, I dip back somewhat into the remote depths of history, but I really, the focus really uh, begins to sharpen in the years just before, just after the Civil War, and it kind of skews increasingly heavily toward the present. I really kind of mm-hmm. try to make a point of really talking about what's happening right now in the city and, and to create a kind of, if you will, a sort of snapshot of at this moment, 2021, 23, when I was working on this, uh, this is what it looks like to me. This is uh, this is the um, this is the situation of what New Orleans appears right now. And of course, it changes. The city changes all the time, and so there will be all kinds of new things real soon that'll make this book maybe a little bit obsolete. I hate to think that. No, but... I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, one of the things that struck me, and I interviewed Chris Thomas King some mm. some uh, maybe two years ago, and he mm-hmm. had a book on, out on the blues, yeah. in which he argues that they actually started in New Orleans, right? right? And so in reading your book, especially when I got to the 1920s and that, I couldn't help thinking about the intertwine, if there was one, between the creation of jazz and blues, Mm -hmm. as well as the writing. Mm -hmm. Did you find that in your research, that there's kind of an overlap of creativity? Sir, you know, um, I would say yes and no. And I would say it's a very curious thing. I am fascinated by Chris Thomas King's argument, and and I really kind of buy it, that basically Jelly Roll Morton in particular— crafted a certain approach to the piano and he was a traveler and was up and down the delta and i think planting the seeds as a piano player in the early years of the 20th century that then flourishes as what we now know today as like the delta blues and such a rich moment what's particularly interesting to me as a reader um is how brilliant jelly rolls memoirs are and how we have a wave of memoirs from those that first generation of of great, great, great musicians that I think are literary. Absolutely, Jelly Roll Morton's book, Alan Lomax recorded him and said his voice, <clears throat> excuse me, his language is so profound, his storytelling is so extraordinary that this has to be thought of as literature. Sidney Bechet's memoir is also an absolutely a triumph 
of storytelling and a kind of poetic and mystical reverie about where the music comes from. Armstrong's Satchmo, My Life in New Orleans, again. So on and on, we see these dazzling um, acts of storytelling and remembering coming from those musicians that I think really stands as literary. Now, what's very curious, there's not the kind of cross-fertilization that you might expect with that bohemian scene in the 20s. One of the points I make in the book is a really strange fact about that uh, intense literary community in the quarter in the 20s is that jazz was roaring to life right under their noses, right around the corner, and was fulfilling everything that aesthetically they were calling for, a bold, new, intense type of work that is coming from a very, excuse me, what we today say, a very real place. This was everything they were calling for, and they seemed to be unaware of it. Hmm. Um, it's a really odd thing. Um, you know, Zora Neale Hurston was passing through town. Marcus B. Christian was becoming active, but they were operating kind of in a bubble um, and responding just to each other in ways that is is a strange thing. Um, yeah. That that modernist music was roaring to life at the same time as this modernist literature was, and there was did not appear to be. You know, Jim Crow being what it was, there's yeah. not a lot of interaction. Well, I want to get into the specifics of the book, but what, listening to you made me think about this. Can we say maybe that the influences, and we're going to talk about yeah. the influences on writing that you mentioned, yeah. the same influences that led to the writing you're, we're mm -hmm. going to talk about mm -hmm. led to the jazz? and Maybe the so. Yeah, I okay. think so. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk more about the book, mm -hmm. um, which, I, I, again, I found fascinating. The book is organized mostly by way of five streets. That's right. Okay? Now, I'm a native New Orleanian, so I knew these streets. But for other folks, can you explain the decision and how you came up with these particular streets as the dividing line? Yeah, yeah. It's a good question. You know, I, I wanted to sort of really get a sort of thick description, a really dense level of detail about how much has gone on in the city. It's not just the quarter where this stuff happened historically. It's a really... The city, in a, in the most expansive sense, my last chapter is on the outskirts, mm -hmm. and you know about West Bank and and out in the east and so on in the swamps, and so I really wanted to cover everything, and it seemed to me a way to organize that. This is a, historically a commonplace to say this. It's a city of extraordinary neighborhoods. It's a very neighborhood city, kind of cities within the city. 72 uh, neighborhoods, if I remember correctly. That sounds right, yeah. <laughs> and they're all, in many ways, are, are kind of little cities within the city, as I say. And, um, and so I wanted to figure out a way to kind of organize big chunks of town in a way that would make sense. And I like the idea of using a particular street because streets are so changeful. I mean, they're different moment to moment, the kind of metaphor of the river. You can't put your toe in the mm -hmm. same river mm -hmm. twice. And I think that's kind of true of the streets. But what was fascinating to me, so the streets sort of serve as sort of corridors. The first chapter is about Royal Street and really the Royal Corridor is a way to talk about the quarter in general between Canal and Esplanade. Chapter two is St. Claude Avenue. And again, it's the St. Claude Corridor. So I talk about the Lower Ninth, Desire, St. Rock, and the Bywater. The third chapter is Esplanade, gets me into the Marigny, um, Bayou St. John, and so on. Fourth chapter is, is Basin Street, Storyville, Congo Square, Treme, and so on. Fifth chapter is St. Charles, um, with several neighborhoods around that corridor. It gave me a sense to work with a kind of, these streets are kind of monuments. Uh, they are places where a whole lot of history and politics kind of crystallizes, um, but in a way that stays very fluid and very mobile. And so it allowed me to do a kind of, you know, in, in universities now we talk a lot about the urban humanities and a way by, by pinning my chapters to certain streets, it became a way to do what I'm calling urban humanities in a way that felt very fluid and very mobile and allowed me to sort of 
bounce around through the generations, even the centuries in some cases, by way of getting at the incredible layers of um, cultural legacy that is there. You know, Esplanade, for example, was a tough chapter to write because there is so much. I, I knew Royal in the quarter was mm-hmm. going to be mm-hmm. busy, um, but I, I once I, I thought, oh, it'll be easier after that. Esplanade was a bear because it's there's so much. St. Charles a little bit easier because it's sort of spread out across these very distinct neighborhoods. Um, but Esplanade ended up being kind of tricky. Well, I, I'm curious because, you know, New Orleans, we have neighborhoods that have really their own identity. You know, right. the Irish Channel, right. Treme. Right. Did you find any connection between kind of the identity of the community and the writing that came out of it? Yeah, I did. And, you know, in fact, that was a really curious thing for me. And I still don't know quite how to explain this. But what was fascinating is how once you start looking at all the major writing that has sprung up in a certain part of town, how thematically they are cohesive. In other words, you know, so much of the uh, literature of St. Claude Avenue happens to be, interestingly enough, about young children and the innocence of the very young and also about kind of financial hard times and the way in a kind of hard scrabble environment, people invest their hopes and dreams in their children in the idea that the the goodness of the very young will allow them to have a better life than their parents did. And so it's amazing to me how uh, readily the major literature of the St. Claude Corridor coheres around this theme, the good yeah, child yeah. up against kind of hard, hard times and seeking to prevail. Okay. Uh, Espl- the, the theme of Esplanade is flight and escape and the idea of uh, kind of rocketing off to the far corners of the earth via Esplanade. Royal Street is about masks. St. Charles is about blood and money. The outskirts are about loss, particularly climate change and the, yeah. the looming uh, cataclysm. It's account. interesting. I'll have to think about those in the context of the neighborhoods. I of know. course. All right, yeah. well, let's talk about the influences you mentioned. We've already <laughs> mentioned one. I'm going to pass, well, mention it, and then we'll move on from there. I'm curious about how these different influences, you think, influenced mm-hmm. the writings that mm-hmm. they did. And mm-hmm. the first one you mentioned is music. I right. think, in the process. And we've talked a little oh, bit yeah. about that. Mm-hmm. Um, the second one you mentioned, though, is trauma and recovery. Mm-hmm. Now, anybody who's lived in New Orleans for any length of time is personally familiar with that. Mm-hmm. But talk about how that impacted the writing mm-hmm. and, and the folks that you write about. Sure. You know, it's. Um, I think a lot about the environment here, the swamps, in particular, that kind of ring around the city historically, and as the the mystery of the swamps, and as a kind of spur to the imagination, I, you know, it's a a place where the enslaved could escape and potentially live for a while as maroons in something like considerable degree of freedom, almost a kind of ideal potentially, um, and the binary, if you will, the incredible opposition between that kind of uh, vision and the brutality of the slave market and the idea of a body with a price tag, that kind of um, incredible opposition is, um, a, is, a, is a kind of, how shall I say, a kind of uh, foundational, it seems to me, to a lot of what goes on here. That is to say, the built environment, you know, floods, hurricanes, plagues, the swamp as a place of pirates and smugglers and, and, and this, the, the formerly enslaved escaping to there and so on, to say nothing of alligators, yada, yada. Um, the, um, the, the kind of potentials for um, traumatic experience that are baked into the environment, to say nothing of what the slave market itself meant, right. the, the levels of alienation <laughs> in which a human being has to kind of come to 
grapple with the experience of, you know, my body is not my body. It's owned by whomever purchases it. The ultimate alienation, the ultimate, if you will, kind of uh, sort of scissoring of the self in acute trauma of that sort of self-disconnection. These two together, it seems to me commonplace, I think, that, that the ways we grapple with trauma is often through storytelling. And this becomes kind of a a storied a storytelling kind of place. And so, you know, one of the things I say at the beginning of the book, it's among the most storied cities in the world. And, you know, it's also, I think, a common observation that, that all art has been called, all art is a geography of scars. All art is an attempt to kind of heal. And there's a lot to heal from here historically. Enslavement yeah. being the primary and most right. obvious thing. Um, this, was the, this was the epicenter for human trafficking hemispherically. And so... There's that, right. and then couple that with the environment. That's the spur to it. I think also there's a radical cosmopolitanism here, where I think it's Lafcadio Hearn who said, "Every race the world boasts is in the French Quarter on any given Saturday afternoon, as well as several races that are nowhere else." And <laughs> and that kind of the collision of different types and and people coming from very the, the backstory behind these people that are bumping into each other is so incredibly diverse that it makes it a a hemispheric hub, a kind of a, a gateway or crossroads of right. the world. And there's there's a lot of sort of backstory to sift and explain and so on. And and that's, it seems to me, what um, leads the uh, leads us to have this staggering literary legacy. Yeah, I'm going to bring a little music back in and again, because when we're yeah. talking about trauma and recovery, mm. and, you know, I couldn't help, and this fits into your radio show, perhaps, mm. thinking when Dirty Dozen... Mm. redid the Marvin Gaye, yeah. oh, what's yeah. going on after right. Katrina. Right. And there was so much music that That's came right. out of that. Um, now, one of the other influences you cite, and you've touched on it here a little bit, is race. Yeah, of course. Uh, on writing and that. Yeah. And, um, talk a little bit more about that. And, of course. I think you've covered it. Sure. No, I think it's uh, obviously it's central. And in fact, you know, going all the way back to that first question you asked me about what kind of motivated, motivated me to write this book, I think that, um, you know, there was an outpouring of writing sort of 1870s and 80s through which the United States and the wider <laughs> world began to grapple with what New Orleans is. And then in the 1940s, that stuff kind of got revisited and rebooted by mm-hmm. Lyle Saxon, uh, people like Herbert Asbury, Robert Talent, who were kind of in some ways writing for a tourist audience. Lyle Saxon's more than that. But, but, but certainly and it, the efforts to sort of explain exotic New Orleans to the Americans and right, so on. Right. Uh, you know, there's a there's a wave of that in the aftermath of the Civil War, another big wave of it right around World War II. And um, it seemed to me that in the aftermath of Katrina, in the era of climate change, also very pointedly in the new ways we've come to think about race since mm-hmm. those, those eras, that it's really time to engage the subject of New Orleans in ways that are really up to speed with new ways of thinking about race, and also the emergency that is climate change. Yeah. You know, in Lafcadio O'Hearn, you don't really get that. And in Lyle Saxon, not as much as one would hope. Um, and so it's time for to really reckon with New Orleans in ways that are attuned to um, what we've learned from Katrina yeah. and what, yeah. what we've learned uh, about how to talk about race and think about race after years of struggle yeah. uh, and, and very valiant struggle from African Americans to educate us about yeah, how to do yeah. this. Well, let's shift gears a little bit. One mm-hmm. of the things you cover in the book, and we can take a step back from the writers for a moment, 
is the influence of small presses oh, yeah. uh, in the city. Some yeah. of which I knew, some of which I clearly didn't know. Mm-hmm. Magazines like Double Dealer and yeah. The Outsider and then Lujan Press. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about the role that these small presses, which really don't exist anymore. It's true. Play. You know, what Play, a thing. I should say. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's an incredible story of New Orleans is what the Double Dealer meant in the <clears> 1920s. You know, that's where Faulkner first began to publish. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, it also signals the kind of cultural reach of this place. You know, no one can kind of feel like kind of a small town and kind of tucked out here on the old frontier, you know, the old Southwest, as it used to be called. And um, we don't think of it necessarily on a day-to-day basis as having this kind of vast literary cultural reach. But the Double Dealer absolutely did, publishing Hemingway and and Faulkner and a host of people who become kind of anchoring figures of the mm-hmm. modernist movement. And then, you know, fast forward a generation or two in the in the early 60s, the outsider and the Lujan Press is doing the same thing yet again with basically the luminaries of that period publishing. You know, it was the press for the beatniks yeah. in the South um, and one of the presses for beatniks, period, which is they were the first one to put Charles Bukowski on the map. Charles Bukowski today is a towering figure. A friend of mine who works in a bookstore said, you know, the books that most often get shoplifted are Bukowski books. <laughs> I think he would appreciate I think that, he actually, would too. from what I know of Bukowski. Suggest yeah. the kind of passion and courage that he elicits yeah. from yeah. his devoted followers that, you know, they boost his books more than yeah. any other. Yeah. And and the idea that Bukowski first really finds his way into print in a serious way is through this Royal Street Press in the early 60s yeah. signals um, how much energy there is here. Um, John and Gypsy Lou Webb worked like it's impossible to overstate how much they worked to bring together that that publishing mechanism and um bob dylan ended up writing a song for gypsy lou Mm -hmm. which signals again the scale of uh their legacy that that they show up in the dylan discography now one of the other things that you say about the city and and the literature is New Orleans was kind of at the vanguard mm-hmm. of what we would call queer literature at That's the time. Right. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that if you can. Absolutely. Well, you know, really, it's interesting. In one hand, the story, that, that theme really surfaces in the 1940s with Tennessee Williams and Truman Capote and, and William March, very, very, very important people. But I think it's also worth noting that... Um, that that big bohemian scene that was in the court of the 1920s, it really launched the preservationist movement, Le Petit Théâtre, uh, the New Orleans Arts and Crafts Club, and the Double Dealer. In that scene, a very significant uh, percentage of the people in that scene were, in the language of the day, confirmed bachelors, mm-hmm. code for queer in the 1920s. And so there was a significant queer presence, very significant queer presence in the Bohemia, the 20s in the quarter. And then in the 1940s, Tennessee Williams, Truman Capote, uh, William March um, are uh, openly gay people who are dealing with sexual. And this is where I think it gets especially important. Truman Capote writes Other Voices, Other Rooms on Royal Street, and it immediately spends, I think, almost a dozen weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. It is an unapologetically um, uncloseted vision of a young gay life coming out of the Deep South. And he became instantly a major celebrity. Tennessee Williams never pulled any punches about who he was and how he lived and so on. And I think it's sort of the, um, how shall I say, there was a live and let live, uh, especially tolerant and open atmosphere in the quarter of that period 
that uh, that was part of his reputation even down into obviously into today and um, and so these kinds of uh, artists felt welcome there, felt inspired there. And as many have pointed out, Tennessee Williams' career could have really been launched from nowhere else. You know, it really, he is a, although he grew up elsewhere, he really uh, becomes the giant that we know him today from his arrival in the quarter. And um, incredibly significant, you know, jumping to the 60s, Cities of the Night, um, John Ritchie's book is is an iconic work of what we used to think of as the queer underground. And it too, it ends the final chapter, the last quarter of the book, all takes place in New Orleans during Mardi Gras. And so the idea of a kind of sexual underground, a place of live and let live and do what you want to, um, is, is baked into the literary legacy and it has extraordinary importance to the history of sexuality in America because these giants uh, were able to do their work here and establish themselves as the iconic figures that they are um, in a place that uh, it's hard to imagine that quite happening I mean, elsewhere. Yeah. Listen, I wanted to ask you about some of the specific writers. Sure. We've already mentioned Bukowski, one yeah, of my favorites. Sure. But I can't let you get out of here without talking about a fellow who I had a couple of drinks with over the years, Everett Maddox. Oh, my gosh. Uh, the Maple Leaf poet. Hallelujah. Tell, did, did you, what did you learn about him, uh, or did you know him? Because he did I, teach briefly. I, you know, I never met him. Uh, he died <clears> in the late 80s, and I didn't get here till the late 90s. Um, so we, I missed him by about a decade. I sure wish I could have experienced him in person. You know, it was interesting in doing the work for this book. I sort of set aside a couple of weeks to really do a deep dive in his poetry, and I just fell in love with it. Yeah, God, what a poet! And I think that I just can't praise his poetry enough. I mean, it the the lyricism, the sophistication, the charm, the warmth, yeah. the um, humor, uh, the warmth in it. There's that poetry is really so often coming from a place of love. I don't know how else to say it. Great yeah. art often does. Not always, I suppose, but um, he's someone who just, he just, I only know him from his verse, but I just know I would have really liked him. He was a bit of a tragic figure. Of course. Um, yeah. I, I would say that almost every time I saw him, he was sure. probably intoxicated. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. But he was always scribbling yeah. lines on uh, napkins. Let's yeah. talk about somebody else, though, that I really didn't know had a connection with New Orleans, and that's Zora Neale Hurston. Right. T- tell us a little bit about her connection. It's here. incredible. She, um, late 1920s, uh, doing graduate work in anthropology or sociology, I believe at Columbia, took it upon herself. She wanted to research uh, sort of the folkways of African Americans in the Deep South. She grew up in Florida and had known, you know, obviously immersed in a certain very particular kind of folk culture, but she came to New Orleans to start to look into hoodoo, voodoo, spiritual practices of various kinds. And and this becomes ultimately her book, uh, Mules and Men. But what's really interesting is before Mules and Men happened, she was, you know, in the city for several weeks, uh, I mean, more than that, um, interviewing people and going to various kinds of spiritual ceremonies and, and writing very eloquently about it. But she gets... Um, uh, she hears about Mother Catherine Seals down in the Lower Ninth Ward. She goes to Mother Catherine's compound and I believe lives there for about two weeks, immersed in Mother Catherine's world and wrote about it very, very powerfully and very beautifully, um, a portrait just called Mother Catherine Seals. It gets published in an anthology of new black writing in Paris almost right away, like 1931 or so, just right after that visit. Um, and that becomes the seed, it seems to me, that gives way to Mules and Men, mm-hmm. which in turn lays the groundwork for 
their eyes were watching God. Yeah, yeah. One of the most assigned <clears throat> texts in American literature classes yeah. in, in the university, you know, today. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, it's one of those stories, a little bit like Faulkner, spending a little bit of time here, a seed gets planted that becomes one of the iconic careers of the 20th century. This is the story of Tennessee Williams. It's the story of Faulkner. It's the story of Zora Neale Hurston. You know, we could talk all day about these different writers, and yeah. for folks that are listening, you need to pick it up for that reason. You're going to find out a lot of things. But let me end with this, because we're going to run out of time in a second. All right, so you obviously immersed yourself in all this research. Was there anything that you found that really stood out or surprised you, like compared to everything else? Gosh, what are the big surprises? So many things. Uh-huh. Um, gosh, I'm trying to think, you know... I mean, every chapter, there are things that I discovered and got so excited about. You know, and a crazy, uh, just an amazing, brilliant, powerful irony of history that I didn't know about until I was working on this book. Um, I write in the St. Charles chapter, I, I work, I'd say a lot about Central City mm-hmm. and the emergence of hip-hop and bounce music around Central City. When Master P first really came into big money, and I'm talking about big money, in the right. late 90s, he was one of the most powerful black businessmen in the country. He came into big money, and he set himself up in a big mansion right outside Baton Rouge that was, in fact, right adjoining the plantation where his ancestors had been enslaved. Oh, wow. To th- it just gives me goosebumps to, yeah. think, goosebumps to think that Master P, in his first major wave of wealth, ends up owning a mansion in the immediate environment where his people had been before. That's incredible. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. You've been listening to the Writers' Forum, and I've had the pleasure of speaking with author and professor T.R. Johnson about his wonderful new book, New Orleans, A Writer's City. T.R., is there a website or a social media site that folks can go to to find out more about you and more about the book? You know, if you just Google me, you'll find uh, stuff about me on Tulane's website. Also, the book came out from Cambridge University Press. They are just beginning to do trade books, really aiming for the general public. And so if you uh, go to the website for Cambridge, you'll see information there. There's also... um, uh, YouTube interviews and, and some things okay. archived there. And uh, it's available in all the bookstores around town and oh, any place else you can get a book. It's yeah. called New Orleans, The Writer's City. I hope you enjoy it. Yeah, they will. Well, <laughs> thanks for being on the show. My pleasure, Michael. Appreciate it. The music for today for The Writer's Forum was provided by Valerie Hunt Jester. And the show is produced by Tyler O'Brien. <laughs>